0: Take your Bible and look with me again in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a wonderful passage of scripture, and I find great joy in being able to share it with you this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses this morning, but focus on just one portion of verse 5, but I'll read the entire text. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I'm speaking for a few weeks about having a gospel-formed life. And by that, I mean what Paul meant when he talked about having a life that is being progressively transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory or what Jesus talked about when he said talked about having a life that loves God supremely and loves others as oneself or as Jesus talked about having a life that demonstrates love for God by living in obedience to God last week we looked at God's provision for a gospel-formed life, that God has given to all genuine believers a saving faith. He has given all things that are necessary for life and godliness, and He has given precious and very great promises, simply saying, God has given us everything we need To have a gospel formed life. Yet when we hear that, most of us would say, I believe that. And yet many of us would still say, even though that's what I believe, that's not what I experience. My life is not being transformed. I still struggle with unresolved anger, with bitterness, with depression, with lust, with hatred, with envy, with discontent, with laziness, and so on. And and I ask, you know, why is my life not being transformed day by day? Is God not working in my life? Or maybe sometimes we ask, Am I not really a Christian? The Bible assures us that God is always faithful in His work in our lives. As Paul told the Philippians, it is God who is constantly working in you both to will the desire and to do the action of his good pleasure. God is always doing that. But then he says, work out your own salvation. What is at work in you is your responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about our role In pursuing a gospel formed life I want us to be reminded as the writer of Hebrews said that without faith it is impossible to please him and so this morning I'm focusing just on a portion of a sentence in verse 5 next week I will talk about the portrait of a gospel filled life and look at what virtue and knowledge and and what that portrait is but this morning I want to talk about pursuing a gospel formed life verse 5 the beginning of the verse again it says this for this very reason on the basis of what I've just said about you having obtained a God given faith having been given everything that's necessary for life and godliness, having been given exceeding great and and, and, and precious promises, now I want you on the basis of that God-given faith to pursue this gospel-formed life. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement Your faith with virtue and so on. So what is your role in pursuing a gospel-formed life? There are three things I want us to take from this text this morning, building on what I said last week. First of all, pursuing a gospel-formed life is always grounded in God-given faith. Not simply faith, but God-given faith. It's not simply, I believe something. We'll see it's, I believe what God has told me to believe. And I rest in that, and I act upon that. We must always be grounded in a God-given faith. So these words are calling us to build our pursuit of a gospel-formed life on everything he has just said. And this is by the way consistent with the New Testament. Paul said that we are that we walk by faith, not by sight. He said as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him rooted in him and built up in him and established in the faith Paul tells us as James does as Peter does that the Christian life is grounded in and never moves from a genuine God given faith now you may be thinking I have faith but I'm not changing I believe. After all, every Sunday when we gather together, we recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, I believe, I believe. And yet, you must know that there are perhaps millions of people around the world who recite that same confession of the apostles creed, many of whom will end up in hell someday so all belief is not the consequence of a God given faith when we think about this God given faith this faith that we have obtained by the grace of God there are always two things that are characteristic of that faith. One is we must always examine the content of our faith. Again, we live in a world where faith has some magical power of its own. If you believe it, if you really believe it, if you strongly believe it, if you keep telling yourself, I believe it, If you write it on a piece of paper and put it on your mirror so that every morning you're reminded, this is what I believe. I believe that God is going to give me a new job tomorrow. I believe it, I believe it. And some would say that belief is simply, if it's true to you, then it's true. If you believe it, then Just the fact that you believe it is is the content of, uh, of, of, of faith. That's all that you need is belief. But if you think about it, you know that that's nonsense if you really think about it. That your belief in something has no power to change what really is or what God intends. I've taken the Bolt bus to New York City. When you go down there to 30th Street Station, see all these people lined up all these different buses and you may ask, which bus is the bus to New York City? And someone points you to the particular bus You believe them, you get on the bus, you believe you're on the right bus, you're traveling down the road, and you end up in Atlantic City. Your belief was well-intentioned. You boarded that bus with good intention, with faith in the word of the people who had told you that was the right bus. You believed as you sat there that you were on the right bus. You were even happy in your belief that you were going to New York City. But your belief does not change the reality. You were on the wrong bus. If the content of our faith is not the word of God, it does not matter how strongly, strongly we believe something or who said it. Someone sent me a text from Africa yesterday saying, I've been watching this person on YouTube. Are they trustworthy? And I wrote back and said, no, they are not trustworthy. They will say nice things and encouraging things and seemingly believable things, but it's not God's word. It's not trustworthy. Someone was lamenting to me the other day that the church that they were attending was, ever since the... Pandemic had taken place and they had returned to uh, public worship, the preaching seemed to be more like just make me feel good preaching. And he said one Sunday as the pastor was preaching, there was a man sitting on the front row, sort of a rough guy, but a sincere follower of Christ. And a simple guy, and he's sitting there listening to the pastor preach, and he blurts out in the middle of the sermon, Where does the Bible say that? And the pastor said, Well, it's all over the Bible. the question that should always be in our minds where does the Bible say that because I want to put my faith in the word of God not in the word of man just in reading the first couple of verses of 2 Peter 1 we see Peter's great emphasis on knowing the truth about God You've you've obtained a faith of equal standing. May, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, And then he has granted to you his precious and very great promises, so that through them, not through anything else, not through my word, not through some self-help book, not through some entertaining preacher, not through some therapeutic feel-good message, but by these promises you become partakers of this transformation in your life if the content of our faith is erroneous then the pursuit of a gospel-formed life is impossible faith is only as good as its content John read this morning that wonderful passage from Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God's word. God said you're going to have a child. You're 100 years old. You're, 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 your wife is barren. That's impossible. Wait. God said this to Abraham. Now you might say, well, I'm going to have that faith of Abraham. My wife and I wanted children, we're claiming that promise that God will give us a child. But that wasn't your promise, that was Abraham's promise. What you can claim is that God has the power to give you a child. What you cannot claim is that God positively will do that. Because we know that Even though God has the power to do everything and anything that is good, he is not obligated to. And he does what is within his power according to his holy will and his purpose. So God can give you a new Cadillac tomorrow. But you have no reason to believe that he will. is only as good as its content and its content must be the word of God. But it's not only the content of that that, that defines biblical genuine saving faith. It's the nature of faith itself. Faith is more than just an intellectual asset to something that is true. Faith is an active trust in God's promises. Biblical faith is an active trust in God's promises. Promises that are centered always in the person and work of Jesus Christ because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And these promises are given to us in the word of God. It's not simply the intellectual possession of God's promises. Again, many people recite the Apostles' Creed, I believe, but their lives are not transformed because though the content is right, there is not an active trust that is, that is based in an ongoing relationship. It's like a man who says, I'm married. But he's never lived with his wife. He's never consummated the marriage. He's never sent her flowers. He's never done anything to protect her or support her. I'm married. Those are only words. I believe those are only words. Biblical faith is an active trust based on a relationship. The apologist Greg Kukel offers an illustration of the nature of true faith. I know some of you recently visited Niagara Falls, so you might appreciate this. Greg says, consider a guy who pushes a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on a tightrope every day. Now, if you can imagine this these massive falls with this water crashing down and this tightrope stretched across from the U.S. to Canada. And here's a man with a one-wheel wheelbarrow pushing it across and he's walking on that line. And he does it every day. And you say, well, I see him do it. Of course I believe he can do it. The man comes to you and says, do you believe I can do that? Of course, I believe it. He says, all right, get in the wheelbarrow. Now this is a whole different kind of faith. This isn't just intellectual belief. It's not just the possession of knowledge of certain facts. This is action. This is active faith. When you say, I will get in that wheelbarrow and trust that you will take me across safely. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe the Holy Spirit. But do you actively trust, rest, rejoice, delight in? If you have genuine faith, then how can you live a life in which you have been united to Christ by the Spirit? That the living God has come to live in your life. And yet, day by day, we can live without a prayer, a thank you, and I love you, Lord, without a consciousness of presence. Faith is always both biblical content active trust I believe that God can save me through the work of Jesus Christ and so I trust him and I keep trusting him that that becomes the fulcrum the the, the center point of my entire life and because I believe that we'll see that my life begins to reflect that i am in this eternal relationship of faith with the living god it's not just faith for salvation that is genuine faith it's faith in all of god's word When we read verses like second corinthians chapter 9 where Paul's, Paul says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. He says, if you, if you give sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow, bount, if you reap bountifully, you'll sow bountifully. And so I have to ask, do I believe that God can bless my life if I'm generous? Of course, I say, yes, I believe God can do that. How he will do that, I don't know. But I believe that God loves generosity. But that's only a belief. If I never write a check, I never drop anything in the box, then I don't have active faith if I truly believe I am generous with God, I'm generous with God's work. If I believe that God has made me and declared me righteous in Jesus Christ, if I believe that, then I don't live in despair because I know that I'm so imperfect. Believing it is one thing, but there are Christians who believe, who say, I am justified by faith, God declares me righteous, and that yet we live with despair because we know that we don't live up to what God expects, and we beat ourselves up or try to purchase our way back to God. When active faith says, yes, I know I don't measure up and I don't like it and I want to fight that sin in my life, but I will still rejoice that I am righteous in Jesus Christ. There's always right content and the right nature of this God-given faith. But secondly, pursuing a gospel-formed life is grounded in a God-given faith that actually works, that is active. Paul, or Peter says, make every effort. Now that English phrase is a translation of two very strong and powerful Greek words, one of which was a favorite of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where he talks about the earnestness and the sincerity, the the, the dedication of those who were giving to help the poor. He combines these two words to talk about an earnest and disciplined effort, a sincere effort to, to add to your faith virtue. He's simply saying, do your very best Give living the Christian life your best shot. Give it everything you have. Work at it, as Paul said. Work out your own salvation. Don't just read about it, as James said. You come to the word of God, you see yourself in a mirror, you forget who you were, and you go on your way unchanged. You're a hearer of the word but not a doer. The historian Jackson Lears once observed that there was nothing more depressing than reading books about how to be happy. In part, he noted, this is because one can't help imagining that sad souls who buy them hoping to turn around a troubled life for $27.99 or less. As if there's some magic in simply having information. So I've read the book. I've read the Bible. i listened to the message. I know the truth. But Paul says, make every effort. This disciplined, sincere application of the word of God to your life. This God-given faith that works is always intentional. It's a response to a command. It's a response, a responsibility. It's intentional. I happen to love apple cider. I love this time of the year when apples come, and I'm always looking for my favorite apple. A wine set, hard, a little bit bitter. Can't wait till they come out. Normally, gotta wait till the end of October or so. But I love apple cider. Suppose I wanted a glass of apple cider. I know that in the refrigerator at home, there's a gallon of apple cider sitting there. And I sit in my easy chair, and I do have one of those. My favorite chair. It's well worn, it even has the indent from my elbow being in it. And I sit there thinking about that apple cider that's in the refrigerator and how delicious it it is. I believe it's there. I believe it tastes good. I believe it's satisfying. But I'm lazy, I don't want to get up out of my chair. All the belief in the world about the benefit and the joy of that apple cider means nothing unless I don't intend to get up, walk to the kitchen, open the door, take a glass, pour a glass, and drink it, I must ask make every effort it's intentional and our text would remind us that this God-given faith this intentional faith is always gospel motivated why do that because I like apple cider I know it tastes good it's satisfying it quenches my thirst It gives me that sugar rush. Why act upon my faith? Why not just believe? Why not rest in Christ and delight in Christ and rejoice in Christ and look to Him daily? Why not? Or why should I? Why should I respond to the word of God intentionally? simply to avoid hell, to avoid the wrath of God, to avoid the fear of not being good enough for God? Why should I obey, to impress others? Peter reminds us that intentional faith is always rooted in, what Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. Why do you do what you do, Paul? Because I have this active faith relationship with a God who loves me so much that he gave his son to die for me and I can't get over that. I didn't just go to the marriage altar and say a vow. I didn't just pray a simple prayer and say, Jesus saved me. No, I entered into a relationship with someone whom I love, who loves me. Why an intentional faith? Because we're grateful for the cross. Because we want to love the Lord who loves us. Paul talks about a faith which works by love. Let me say that an evidence of having a joyful, intentional faith in your life or having an intentional faith in your life is that you will have a joyful work in your life. Have you ever met a believer who is serving the Lord actively, energetically, and somewhat seemingly sincerely, but they are miserable? And everyone around them who works with them becomes miserable. See, they are doing all of the right things. But they're doing it for the wrong reason. The gospel always produces a joyful, grateful work for the Lord. And if you don't have joy in serving Jesus Christ, then you need to look deep within and examine your motivation, why am I doing what I'm doing? An intentional faith will always be a joyful faith. An intentional faith that works will also always be what I'll call a non-justifying work. I love an older book, by an author, Walter Marshall, entitled, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And in that book he talks about how all good works that honor God must flow from a clear conscience. Because if my work for God is not coming from a clear conscience, then that work becomes a justifying work. I did something wrong. I have been lived up to what God expects. And now I'm going to do this and, and m- maybe God will be pleased with me. And so it becomes a justifying work. And tragically, that's the way many Christians live it's like penance in religious systems where you failed you need to make it up to God and your works become justifying works God now accept me because I'm doing better and Marshall rightly argues that Any gospel motivated work that honors God can never be a a justifying work. It must be a work that comes from a conscience that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes God, I know I failed. But I accept that you have cleansed me. Of the blood of Christ and yet that you have forgiven me for Christ's sake and the work that I do is simply a thank you it's not to accept me because God already accepts me in Christ The language that Peter uses reminds us that this God-given faith that works is not only intentional, but it's a constant work. The language itself tells us this is something that we keep on doing. Why? Why, do I, why can't I just believe and it's done? Why must I keep believing and keep resting and keep coming? We all know from our own experience why that necessity is there. First of all, because sin has not been completely put to death in my life. Sin is real. The battle for sin is real every day. I must keep believing and pursue this intentional faith because Of this battle with sin in my own nature and it's a battle that we're not always winning because we're not always believing we know that God does not believe for me nor does he act for me but we do know that he enables both genuine faith and he enables genuine action built upon that faith but he will never do it for you God is working in you but you work out your own salvation you work out what God is doing in your life We must, must never forget the why of the intention. The love of Christ constrains me. But thirdly, a third characteristic, pursuing a gospel-formed life is always grounded in a God-given faith that eventually becomes fruitful. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or as older translations say, to add to your faith. But supplement is, I think, a better translation. It's actually a word that was used of wealthy benefactors who provided the means for ancient theaters to put on their shows. You know, they provide it like someone might do for the Metropolitan Opera. You know, there are wealthy people who provide the funds to make this, this theater be and do what it ought to be. And that's the word that Peter uses here. You supplement. It doesn't change the nature of faith. It simply enables faith to demonstrate that it truly is faith. If there's nothing added to it, then James would say that's not a real faith because a faith without works is dead. Or Peter might say a faith that does not evidence itself in virtue and knowledge and patience that isn't pursuing these and growing these. He's certainly not saying that there's something wrong with faith. He's simply saying that genuine faith demonstrates itself in a transformed life. Someone might say, don't you believe in salvation by faith alone? And we would say wholeheartedly, yes. We believe in salvation by faith alone, but faith that is never alone. It's by faith alone you're saved, but that faith will never be alone because that faith will be supplemented with virtue and knowledge and patience. It's never intended to stand alone. It's intended to show its reality by a transformed life. How do we do that? Peter will later say at the end of his book, but keep growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no secret. Jesus is the secret. He's the mystery that God has revealed that in him is everything that you need. It's everything that your heart really longs for. You will find it in him. If I have this God-given faith, if I have obtained it, Then it begins to manifest itself in an intentional pursuit of a transformed life. Now I confess as a believer I have the ability to refuse to do that. That is, I can not make every effort to supplement my faith. But I can't do that without God still working in my life. I can resist. But if I resist and I'm truly a believer, then I'm resisting the spirit of God. And he doesn't take that lightly. So I live a life under God's discipline. I live a life under deep conviction. I live a life running from God. I can refuse to do this. I can also try to fulfill the calling of this verse by my own self effort. And if I try to do that, if I try to do it without truly resting in Christ and delighting in Christ, Then I will live a life either of pride, which is evident in so much of Christianity. Look at what I'm doing. That's not gospel-motivated faith and works. Or it ends up in despair. I don't measure up. But if you're living in the gospel, if you are resting in Christ, you're never overwhelmed with that you don't measure up because you know that God accepts you in Christ. So the only option we should choose is to daily seek His grace. To grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To go back to that marriage analogy, to analogy not just to say the vows at the altar, but to move in and live and grow in the most intimate relationship that is possible. You don't just say, I believe. You say, I want to love this one in whom I believe. I want to delight in this one in whom I believe. I want to do everything in my life to please this one in whom I believe because he is worthy. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, you are so full of grace and so full of patience with us. We thank you for the perfect, the absolutely perfect salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That as you look at each of us this morning, wherever we are in the world today, you know that we do not measure up. But at the same time, in Christ, we are loved, we are accepted, we are chosen, we are adopted. Forever. So, Father, help us to love you. To believe that all that you have given us in Christ is real. It's for now that we can have peace and we can have joy. We can have victory over sin. We can have lives that are transformed because we're in a relationship with you, the living God. Help us to believe and to keep on believing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.